welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast. My guest today is Shona Davison, autistic educator and advocate, making the world better for autistic people. She has an MA in autism and gives presentations to small groups and large conferences about autistic parenthood and challenging behavior to parents, professionals, and academics. Welcome, Shona. Thank you so much for being on the Actually Autistic podcast. Oh, hello. Thank you for having me. So I found you on Twitter where you are incredibly active there advocating for autistic people and the parents of autistic children. And it's really impressive how much time and effort that you put into that social media advocacy. So first of all, I want to thank you so much for doing that. Oh, thank you. I I enjoy social media. So it's kind of a hobby for me as well. Well, that's wonderful because it's really difficult for lots of us. So I'm glad Mm. (laughs) I, I, I enjoy parts of it. But I do find Twitter kind of daunting. So I'm really impressed when anybody has some facility with that, which you clearly do. (laughs) So would you tell us, how did you find out that you're autistic? I followed a pretty common route, to be honest, in that my children got diagnosed before you, or at least it was my son first. And once we started noticing there was a lot of things that were different about him, he always seemed to stand out from the rest of the kids at school. After lots of wondering, maybe we thought ADHD at one point, but when I finally thought thought it may be autism and I read up on it, it just sort of, the penny dropped that it fit me. Um, I had already thought, of, maybe considered it when I was in my 20s, but I just did a little bit of research and I didn't think it fitted me, but back then, because I'm 41 now, so it was 20 years ago. Back then, there was, wasn't was really much known about how different it can look in women. So mm-hmm. I was just reading sort of the medical definitions. And although it did sort of seem quite familiar, I decided, no, I wasn't autistic. And then just forgot about it. And then when I started to learn about autism because of my son, that was when the penny dropped that, yeah, that fits me as well. And then shortly and after... I'd worked how I was autistic. My daughter was getting a bit older and starting to have more problems, and we realised she was too. So there's three of us in this house who've got diagnosis. So when that penny dropped, how long had you already been thinking about your life and how it compared to this autistic framework, or did you go through a period of kind of life review where you you went, oh, that's why that happened, and and oh, this is why that happened. Yeah, it was. Um, it takes quite a long time, I think, to process it all. So, at first, I was really happy about it that I'd kind of realised and it explained a lot. But then you sort of look back over your life and you can think of misunderstandings that happened, and then you start feeling a bit sad that oh, that if I'd have known, that might not have happened. Or, and also, I could I could think of things like stuff I didn't know about. Like I used to think I was maybe deaf because I couldn't hear when I went out. When we went out socialising, I couldn't hear what everyone was saying when everyone else used to get on with their conversations. So I went to the doctor to say, I think I'm deaf. But I had a complete and easy conversation with him and he could quite clearly see that I wasn't deaf because I was talking to him, so he didn't refer me or anything and it didn't make sense. And now when I look back, it's nothing to do with being deaf. It's my auditory processing that I can't, when there's lots of background noise, I can't filter out the voices of the people I'm trying to listen to. So things like that started making sense and I could look back at 
things in the past where I didn't understand myself and now I have much greater self-awareness and that just makes it much easier to look after yourself and make life less stressful. So it's been hugely beneficial to get diagnosed, but quite a few downsides as well. Mm -hmm. And how long did that process take you, do you think? Well, from realising, I didn't do anything about it for a few months, maybe two or three months. And then I tried to get a diagnosis on the NHS and I got on the waiting list. But then I realised that my husband's work would pay for a private one. So I actually then went and got a private one. So I was at, that was only eight weeks till that. So I actually was diagnosed within just a few months from working it out for myself. And then ages after that, I eventually got an NHS appointment, which I went to anyway because I was wondering about ADHD too. But the actual learning about myself is still ongoing. I'm still learning new things all the time. So it was like maybe three and a half years ago when I was diagnosed now. So I'd say I'm still learning more and more about my brain. Like I learned that I was aphantasic as well and I think quite a few people, autistic people are, which means I can't visualise things and I just never knew that other people could visualise in their head. I have, I do things in different ways, so if I have to remember directions, I remember the words. Or if I have to remem- remember, if I have to try and recognise someone, and I know that they're important, so I must try and remember them, like at a work conference or something, then I used to say, oh, he's a tall man with the bald head, and like a verbal description in my head. Whereas other people, I think, can just remember the picture of what they look like. So just working out these little things helps me and... I can have strategies, I can understand when I'm likely to get things wrong and do things in alternative ways. Like not being able to find my car in the car park and things. So I now take photos sometimes or drop mm-hmm. a pin on Google Maps, that sort of thing. <laughs> Very wise. I, wa- I wandered around a parking lot for about five minutes longer than I should have yesterday. <laughs> I, yeah. just, I, I try to look at like little markers like, oh, okay, here's this tree, here's this sign. That's how I'll find the car yeah. when I come out. Yeah, well, yeah That's they, what I do. Maybe you're aphantasic too <laughs> because I remember words. I never. I would never just visualize it. I'll, I'll think it's, it's next to the tree, which is after the whatever, which is, and I think not everybody does that. Well, I'm actually hypervisual, right. and what I have found is that most people fall somewhere in between you and me. Yeah, you know where they can remember what something looked like, but not necessarily then take that object and kind of rotate it around in their heads and take it apart and stuff like that. Well, no, like, I couldn't. Can you do that? Oh yes. That's impressive. And that's why I became, you know, an architectural designer and a theater designer and all of that, because I can hold houses in my head and (laughs) see them inside and out and picture the wiring and the framing and all of that. And, uh, of course, I just thought everybody did that in their heads because it seems like such a basic thing. But I have prosopagnosia, too. I can't remember faces at all. Isn't that weird? <laughs> yeah. So at first I thought maybe I had prosopagnosia because of how yeah. I'm so bad at memori- remembering people and recognizing yeah. them. But I think it aphantasia explains it better for me. It may. And I also, though, I can't tell cars apart. Like that's oh. another thing that is part of prosopagnosia. So 
and I recently got kind of a nondescript looking vehicle and I just kind of sometimes stand in the parking lot and am about to cry. <laughs> so I don't understand how this stuff works. I will tell you that part of the way that I dealt with prosopagnosia was getting good at drawing portraits because if I draw somebody's portrait, then their face is fixed in my head and I won't forget it. Mm. Brains are... Oh. Brains are exciting, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, whenever I talk about aphantasia on Twitter or social media, uh-huh. somebody always, always seems to realise, oh, that's me too. Um, yes. I think that with non-autistic people, a lot they're a lot more in the middle, but we autistic people seem to have a, more aphantasic people or more people who are hyperphantasic, who are really, really good at visualising like you. We te- And it's quite common, I think, with autism that we're seeing tend to have extremes of skills, whatever that may be. I agree. And I think the term for it is a spiky profile. Yeah, yeah. And we had a nice chat about that with Sarah Hendricks a little bit ago. I feel like that kind of spikiness gets us into trouble sometimes as kids. Because I could read really well and I could describe things really well when I was writing and stuff like that. But my handwriting was terrible and I I have dyscalculia. I can't do math in my head. It just doesn't make any sense. And algebra is downright impossible for me. So I'm great at one particular thing and then just so far behind the curve on some other things. I'm the opposite. I'm good at math, but I'm a really slow reader. Yeah. I'm not very imaginative when it comes to writing. It's very sort of factual. I'd be a terrible creative writer in a novel or something. (laughs) Well, we need all kinds of writing, so that's nothing to to feel bad about for sure. Any writing is good writing if it's good writing as far as I'm concerned. So how long did it take you to feel comfortable telling your family and then presenting yourself professionally as being actually autistic i told everyone immediately because that's <laughs> typical of me I that's what i, I did it. too yeah <laughs> Ta-da! I announced it on facebook straight away right i started yeah. a podcast immediately <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't didn't bother me at all but in hindsight i was completely unaware of a lot of the problems with doing that so you, i probably should have put more thought into it i wouldn't have, i don't think i would have done anything differently mm-hmm. but yeah i now know so a lot more about the discrimination people have and especially when you're a parent and mm-hmm. people do treat me differently sometimes once they know i'm autistic mm-hmm. um so i kind of should have put maybe I should have put more thought into it. I'd probably advise other people to put more thought into it. But yeah, I, I doubt I would have done anything different. I don't know, in a sense, how much even control we have over that in ourselves in terms of yeah. whether we feel the need to process by telling people, which I definitely yeah. did, and it sounds like maybe you did too. And yeah. and some of us are just here. I am, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, take me as I am or leave me alone. And Unfortunately, I think we don't find out about a lot of those downsides in terms of the way people perceive us until we come out with it. Yeah. You know, how would we have known, right? So, uh, yeah. I actually think where I was working anyway, there's quite a... I wasn't the only autistic person. I don't know how many of them knew they were autistic, but everyone seemed to have autistic kids. It was an analytics department. I've worked in lots of analytics departments with Mm. lots of people, in banking mostly, and... Uh. um, a lot of people are autistic or yes. their parents of autistic children and it's genetic so you 
you yeah, kind, you kind of, of see whether the kids might go from. Yeah, you kind of yeah. think there might be a through line there. I can totally understand mm-hmm. that. So once you became public about being an autistic parent, and you became aware of some of the issues that autistic parents can face and parents of autistic children, it sounds like that kind of galvanized you to look deeper into those things. Is that when you decided to go get a master's in autism? Again, typical Shona style. I already started on the master's before I'd even got diagnosed officially and before even any of my children had been diagnosed. But we'd worked, I knew that, we were at the stage where I knew that I was autistic, so I it was um, I started the masters in the September. I think I got diagnosed in the October. So I just did that because I was autism had become my special interest. Really, I was really really loving reading about it, learning about it, and I just happened to come across the course in Sheffield, the masters. So I I just sent an email and asked about it, and it was only a few weeks later when I was because it was just about to start it was only a few weeks later and I was sat in the lectures and wow. started it and that was part time so it took three years and yes the final module is the dissertation and I decided to do it on autistic parenthood because there's really not that much research about autistic parenthood whereas there's lots and lots about being a parent of autistic children but very little about being parent and being autistic so I looked at the pros and cons because also what there is it's quite negative too, and you often you do see in research sometimes some really bad assumptions. There isn't much research to say that autistic people have more di- difficulties with parenting, but but you see people assuming it. There was one I can't remember the reference, but there was one where they said how um, clearly being autistic uh, poses difficulties with parenting, and then they didn't put any references because there isn't any research that shows that. So I wanted it to include the positives as well as the negatives. So I did qualitative analysis and I interviewed other autistic parents because I've got lots of contacts which are mostly from social media but locally as well. Lots of friends who are autistic. So it was easy to find participants and I interviewed them and just drew out some of the positives and the negatives. And the biggest negative by far was relationships. Relationships were generally mixed but relationships with professionals was really negative. Every one of the participants had had bad experiences with professionals, like teachers, social workers, that sort of thing. And only two of them had had any positive ones to talk about. So I think that's something that needs researching a bit more. And there was also a case of someone being falsely accused of fabricating an induced illness. That is what used to be Mm. called Munchausen's by proxy. And this person almost, she was, it was a false accusation. She got proved she she was cleared but she was worried about going to prison losing her children and it was a horrendous time for the family so that's kind of made me more interested in that area I think there's a lot of injustice autistic parents get more attention and parents of autistic children not just autistic parents but get a lot more attention from social services and often unwarranted and I think misunderstandings happen because people are looking from a non-autistic perspective and at an autistic family and really, you have to parent differently when your children are autistic or even when you're autistic. There's some things that you need to do differently to do a good job of parenting. And if people aren't understanding your reasons for doing that, it can look bad. Mm-hmm. For example, my daughter's 
She's keep she wears onesies a lot of the time, even out in public, and she's getting a bit old for that now. But she's oh, that's what it would look like from someone who doesn't understand her sensory issues. But they're soft, and she doesn't like scratchy clothes. She calls them scratchy. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I have to put aside what other people are gonna think and do what I think is best for her. But then you run the risk of being judged. Yeah. Yeah, just put a cape on her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you don't have any powerful yeah. people like social services judging you, it's not an issue. I don't care what like the neighbours think and stuff. But mm-hmm. then sometimes you have people in a powerful position who are making these judgments about you. And if they don't have a thorough understanding of autism, that can leave families quite vulnerable. And I, I know, I just have heard so many stories from talking about this with people online and in my research of really horrendous injustices that have been happening. So I'd like to delve into that more for my next bit of research. I'm just applying for a doctorate at the moment. So let's talk about Munchausen syndrome for a minute and how how somebody coming and looking for supports for their children, how anything that they did could possibly be misconstrued as a serious psychological disorder like Munchausen. Well, so fabricate-induced illness, as it's called now, so it used to be Munchausen's by proxy, it's, it's when you're exaggerating or completely fabricating the symptoms, and it's really rare. However, I don't think it's that rare that people are accused of it. And it seems to be, I can't remember the exact stat, I think it was maybe 59% of the accusations happened after someone had made an official complaint about a professional. So it possibly could be people using it as a way of silencing or defending themselves, their careers, that sort of thing. Sometimes it's probably just misunderstandings because of what I was saying about how you sometimes have to parent differently when you're autistic or your children are autistic. And you can see how sometimes... Things like not giving eye contact might give the wrong impression to someone who doesn't understand autism. They might think you're lying or being shifty or something. So, but also, a lot of the things that are co-occurring with autism are invisible. So, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, for example. So, my, my daughter has leg pain and she's had a few dislocations already. Luckily, from our perspective of not getting accused of anything... Some of them were actually had to go to A&E, so they saw that the bones were out. But it's not always obvious if it's just pain, um, so you don't always get believed. Mm. And it's sometimes I think it's hard for people to accept that there isn't always a, a really a nice, neat genetic test of, of something that they can put a label on. It's not always obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's say that you're a parent and you have an autistic child and you're an autistic parent or not, but let's just assume that you're autistic and your child's having these, maybe some leg cramps and some tummy troubles. And, you know, the kid doesn't have the flu. They've ruled out several other things. How would you suggest approaching a medical professional and trying to find someone who either understands or that you can educate? Do you have any tips for that? You know, it's really hard because so many things are no-win situations. So, for example, if you don't agree with what the doctor says, you might think, go and get another 
a second opinion, but then that gets put marked against you as like doctor shopping. That's seen as a sign as someone who was an over anxious mother, or yeah, getting private, going private instead mm-hmm. of using the NHS as we have here. That goes against you. Doing lots of research, so it seems to be it's possibly people who are more educated who get accused. And you know, autistic people are often very good at doing research, and yes, and so they might have all of the information and do a big monologue on it and then that's seen as suspicious as well when you read the literature because i've started reading quite a lot of it all the way i'm through through i'm thinking well that makes autistic people vulnerable that makes us vulnerable and if you look at like the list of things that are seen as characteristics of people who fabricate and induce illness a lot of it just fits with autistic people and it's all nearly always mums who get accused it's women so Someone like me, autistic, mental health issues, female, educated, knows a lot about autism, especially got an interest in fabricated and induced illness now, that's not going to look good. So we've actually made the decision in our house that my husband is going to do the doctor's appointments from now on because I am vulnerable of being accused of it. But I think it's a really important topic and it needs researching, so I just my husband's doing it luckily he is a very involved father and so and he's got the time nowadays so yeah that should yeah get rid of that worry it's unfortunate but sometimes you just have to do what you have to do so it sounds like if you have a helpful male in your family whoever that might be an uncle or you know even just to go along with you yeah and to just sort of stand behind you and I, I think it, unfortunately, it matters too. Like our whole physical appearance. I'm, I'm not very tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I really have trouble getting taken seriously in a lot of situations. Yeah. But I find if I walk in with my six foot three husband, then all of a sudden, my words carry a lot more weight. Yeah, so. it's terrible, really, isn't it? But it is. I I find the same. So I would take my husband along for yeah. any relevant meetings if I needed to, but I am doing even more so now. Yeah. Um, plus also, I I cry a lot. I can't, I don't know why. I Apparently, I don't show my emotions in my face, but then suddenly I do just start crying. So sometimes I can't get my words out and I just completely, if it's something that I'm finding stressful, mm-hmm. I completely mess up what I want to say. So it helps me when he's there from that perspective too. Yes. A lot of single mums or single parents generally just don't have that support. So I'm in a very privileged position in that I do have a lot of support around me, like other family as well, and I pay for um, help with the children and things. So I think I'm in a position where I I can do this sort of research, I hope, so so I want to because it's there's a lot of women out there having to do it on their own. Um, and getting blamed and having a really hard time and even some people having their children taken off them mm-hmm. unfairly yeah like undeserved and the one of the things because i heard a radio interview about it and the, the main lady who talked about this was from the royal college of pediatricians she was saying that she's concerned about the children we're hearing so much about the parents and it's the children that are important and, and that is so true but i think people maybe are underestimating the effects of a false accusation of fabricating-induced illness on how that impacts the children. Because if you're being told that your mum is making it up and 
they keep talking in the literature about getting the child used to their uh, like more normal illness behavior and getting them back to doing things like if they've been out of school or and basically telling them that they aren't ill so they're, they're having to tell them that their mum's been making it up and I think that's going to have a terrible effect on the Oh, children. that's got to be worse. <laughs> that's yeah. horrendous. And that's horrendous that gaslighting. Gets, Good grief. Yeah. If the child gets then taken away from the family yeah. as well. So I think I, I want my research to include the impact on the children as well because that's really important and I don't think it's fair to be saying that the parents are worrying about themselves and that it that it, it's important that we have these accusations because of protecting the children because if they're false they're not protecting the children they're hurting the children so there's a lot going wrong and mm. there is a lot of critique and literature and critiques of the literature already so I've got a lot of reading to do I've got, and I've started on it already <laughs> All right. Well, I, oh my goodness, I am so glad that you are on the case, Shona. This is wonderful. So do you do you write books? Have you written a book already? Are you working on one? No, I've written a chapter in the book, but I've not written my own book. But, um, yes, there's one that's going to be published soon that I've got a chapter in. It's actually awesome. anonymous, but anyone who read, who follows me on Twitter will probably guess which one's me pretty easily. Oh, good. <laughs> it's, not very, it's not very anonymous. What's the title of the book? Oh, you know, I don't think I remember. <laughs> it's, it's about, it's um, by, edited by... Dean Wharton, Luke Bearden, and Cleo Cosburn, and they're basically collated lots of parent stories from autistic parents. And I, it can't be that long that it's going to be published. Okay, well, I'll I'll get the details later, and then I'll put it on the website for okay. our <laughs> listeners. So, what do you do when you're faced with all this? I, this is some really tough stuff, Shauna. How do you deal with hearing all these stories does taking action help you process all of that because you know we get accused of not having a theory of mind of not having empathy and all I'm hearing from you is buckets and buckets and buckets of empathy yeah it's funny isn't it how people say that about autistic people and it's just not true at all that's not what I see I see a lot of perhaps I'm biased because of uh, I'm on Twitter so much, but I see a lot of people advocating for others and supporting others. So you wouldn't do that if you had no empathy or no theory of mind. And actually, I think that we sometimes have too much empathy. If an ambulance goes past with blue lights on, I sometimes fill up with tears. Mm-hmm. And then if I see a, someone in a stretcher, I really, really do start crying. So it, it it's weird how you have these really out of date narratives about autism and people still believe them and and then when you realize that you are that's which is why a lot of people don't realize they're autistic but when you realize that you are and you realize how much of the things that people know about autism are wrong yeah that's definitely probably the biggest factor in why i didn't see Asperger's or autism or anything in myself or any other of the members of my family, even though some of them and me fit all the other profile. Yeah. It, th- I think that's a really damaging stereotype. It certainly prevented myself and several other people I know really well from getting diagnosed. So let's just state categorically here that that is 
a stereotype and might be true of certain autistic people. But if you have lots of empathy or know somebody with lots of empathy, that doesn't mean that they're not autistic. Yeah. Uh, we can have, I was reading a book, I think it was one of the Outlander series, where the main character talks about her daughter couldn't do medical work because she had a crippling empathy. And that's certainly how it feels to me. There's just lots of things that I can't do. I can't watch sad movies. I can't, I can't stay on Twitter very long. There's a whole lot of people that I unfollow or block on Facebook because they will post pictures of things that are really tragic that I guess yeah. they need. I love Shakespeare and I refuse to do any of the tragedies. <laughs> so... I think it's really important that we change that because that belief that we don't have empathy, I feel like is used as a rationalization for accusing people of things like Munchausen. So tell me again mm. the current name for that. Fabricated and induced illness. Fabricated well, and induced illness. Okay. FII for short. Yikes. Okay. I'm probably not going to remember that. There's, there's like lots of names for it. I think there's a different ones. Munchausen is so easy to remember, too. That's yeah, I think Munchausen is when it's about yourself, and Munchausen by proxy is when it's like you were saying your child's ill, usually. Oh, so, okay, and interesting. By proxy means another person. Ah, all right. One of the other things that you talk about is challenging behavior, and I'm guessing you're talking about that in kids but it doesn't have to be does it so i have a presentation that i do about challenging behavior where i critique a lot of the definitions that we have in the literature because all of the definitions really are based on social expectations and they go they generally are saying if something is not a social norm and it's hurting somebody um, then it's challenging but what we don't look at is how the usually the autistic person or sometimes it's used about people with learning disabilities or both we never look at how they're being challenged or well, lots of people do actually so look, many people i'm not the first person to be giving these sort of criticisms but in the literature that you read and when you see policies and things in schools they're always assuming that it's the child or the disabled adult who's being challenging and they're not looking at how they're challenging them so for example when my son was struggling to go to school he was being challenged at school by the sensory environment teachers making him do things like play rugby and he's not he can't understand it he can't process the instructions well so he would miss instructions and not do what they were saying and then he'd get told off so his anxiety was going through the roof and it was all causing him lots of distress and harm and then I was making him go so because I didn't know any better in those days and I was forcing him to go to school even though it was like this awful, stressful place for him. And then when he reacts by hiding or running away, then the, he would be seen as the one having behavioural issues when actually my behaviour as a parent was just as harmful to him. The school's behaviour, the teachers, they were hurting him. So actually my, t my behaviour and the school's behaviour and all the people around him would fit the standard definitions of challenging behaviour except for the fact that they have in it about 
not fitting with social norms and in our society it's normal for a parent to force a kid to do stuff that they don't want to do it's normal for teachers to make everybody sit some in the classroom quietly even though it could be causing them a lot of sensory pain or distress so i don't think that that's they're good definitions and i think we should change them and it should be as simple as if you're causing some harm to another person or yourself it's and it's not permitted then it's that's challenging and it should be including what we're doing as well as carers and people who are supposed to be supporting the autistic people but because at the moment everything to do with autism tends to is mostly done by non-autistic people they always look from that perspective and they don't look in the other the other perspective and i think that's how you end up with really unethical interventions and treatments so most people would have thought what i was doing forcing him to school what the teachers were doing making him join him in rugby that's something most people who don't know any better think that him at school playing rugby is a success but the reality is when you force kids to do that to do things that is hard for them and they eventually learn to comply because they don't get away with running off or whatever then they end up really stressed for long periods of time for the whole childhood and people end up with ptsd mental health problems and that's why we've got such a horrendous suicide rate amongst autistic people so i think it's we just need to completely change how we treat autistic people and just because someone looks like they're behaving like a non-autistic person that isn't necessarily a success the success story is if they're happy and they've got good well-being and you have to look at the long term and that needs to come before sitting in a school complaint mm-hmm. it's a, it's like it's an obsession that we have to make every kid go to school I mean, you even see, when you read about school refusal, as the term is, you even see articles where they're saying how awful and stressful the school is for this autistic person. But then they still say things like, oh, and the parents need support to get them there. Oh, and the parents are worrying because of the trauma they had as children if they're autistic parents and all this blame on the parents or the child, the child needs support. It's like, you acknowledge what an awful, horrible place it is for the children. (laughs) Yes. Why do you need to support them to be there? Just don't send them to school. So we had to go to home ed. It would be nice if there was a school that was suitable. Mm -hmm. But because of the way the education system is in the UK, it's just so inflexible. We just haven't been able to get somewhere that would be suitable for him. So we're doing home ed. Here in the United States, it's just really uneven. Even within Mm. one city, the quality of education is vastly different from one neighborhood to the next. And so a lot of the times you find yourself as a parent switching schools, you know, every couple years or every year. We were in Northern California when my kids were going to school and my son I he, I had him in three or four different schools because he did fine until middle school. And then all of a sudden in middle school, I, he was reading huge amounts of books. I don't know. He was in the fifth grade and he was reading adult science fiction and fantasy and things like that. Yeah. And they wanted him to do a reading log, which means he needed to write down exactly how many minutes he'd been reading. And because, like, he couldn't remember to do that and then was afraid to lie 
Like yeah. he would rather fail reading than lie on a form. And so they were failing him out of reading. <sighs> and I said, but look at the, what is he reading? Look at his backpack. It's full of books. Are, are you really going to tell me he's failing reading? Well, he didn't do the paperwork. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so I pulled him out of there and put him in a smaller school, which was kind of more accommodating, but they were not very well organized. So it's, yeah. it was the hardest thing. I was really surprised that schooling was by far the most difficult part of parenting for me, because every year it was a matter of finding them a good teacher. And sometimes that meant switching classrooms in one school which could be a political issue or going totally across town. So I have a lot of sympathy for all the parents trying to put their kids through school. But we did at one point homeschool, and that was really fun. Yeah, there's lots of positives and negatives of home education. Like one of the positives is, because I have a teacher who helps us, we can have the same teacher because at school every September it would all go wrong as the new teacher got to know him and... Uh, so we'd have a few weeks of really hard to get him into school every September. Christmas would be hard too. So but we don't have to have a change every year, and that's good. Yeah. As he gets older, we're probably going to need more help, like sort of more specialist tutors rather than like a primary school one who just a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. But obviously most people don't get to have help from a teacher, so the um, you know some people have to give up jobs. Some people have had to go on benefits go down to one income and not everybody feels confident doing home education mm-hmm. so I think it's really unfair that that it's good that it's there as a last resort for some people but it's really unfair that there aren't schools that do a good enough job I mean our experience it wasn't for the schools it wasn't for lack of trying they just they didn't have the knowledge right. the environment just the size of the school the number of kids was just never going to work anyway and they don't have the resources. There's so many cuts in the UK at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's the same here. It's it's yeah. awful. If you have money, then yeah, then you can put your kid in a private school or get tutoring or whatever you want. But there's so much poverty right now. So many kids are living on the street and in cars oh. and stuff like that. So then that gets compounded on top of everything. Yeah. And then when communities are struggling to feed and house people, then any kind of other support gets put way on the back burner. Yeah. And I don't know, in a sense, uh, you kind of are glad that a lot of kids aren't being shoved into ABA therapy because that's still what's prevalent here, uh, certainly in Portland for the most part. But certainly where in the UK for children, if you're going through school, the education system, there's a lot of benefits for having a diagnosis because you can get some support. When you mm-hmm. become an adult, there's not really much support available. Mm-hmm. Um, then the, the, the downsides of discrimination and stigma. We don't have the issue of ABA as much as you do, but it is growing. The ABA industry here is growing. And, Yikes. Yeah. Are there any other subjects that you really love? I I do have really strong, intense interests, which is one of the best things for me about being autistic. 
So I tend to get really involved with one subject rather than having lots of different interests. And I've had really weird ones over the years. Like um, before I was interested in autism, I was doing forex trading, which I loved. And I was making my own programs. I had really fancy Excel trade for me. And I learned the programming language. And I had fancy spreadsheets and things. So I did that for a while. So you were doing financial trading? Yeah. it, It was mostly on demo accounts. And I did have a small account. But I never got good enough to want to risk much money. <laughs> right, um, right. But that was, I loved that because that was all mathematical and logical. But before that, I was gambling. But it is always, people always roll their eyes when I say this, but it's in a way <laughs> where you always win. So I was like playing the different um, bookies off against each other. When you have something like tennis with only two outcomes, then you can, they look at what they're, it's, it actually has a name which I didn't know. I thought I'd invented it. It's called arbitrage, so that one you can put bet on each side of the game with mm-hmm. different bookies, and you find the ones where you'll definitely win. So I would win like one or two percent each time. But the bookies worked it out, and they were banning me. They must have algorithms or something that know when you're doing that. So they, so I was getting banned from the bookies. But that was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> And I had fancy spreadsheets for that as well. And I did make a bit of money doing that before I got banned. Whoopsie. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had, I had, I was interested, was a kid, I loved Sherlock Holmes. So yeah, I always have something on the go. It's autism at the moment that I'm doing really obsessively. And I don't really have any other hobbies. Unless you can't go into the gym, that's about it. I'm walking my dog. I'm curious about Sherlock Holmes. Really, Sherlock Holmes was when I was a child. But mm-hmm. um, I, th- I mentioned that one because... I just read the complete collection again as an adult a few years ago and it was really good because it reminded me of when I was a kid and I used to love it. Uh, Yeah. Did you, when you were reading it, did it, did you have any trouble picturing yourself as Sherlock Holmes just because Sherlock's a different gender or were you really able to just kind of put yourself in that personality? I don't, I don't know actually. I don't think I thought of myself like that, but I must yeah. like detective things because I also have been watching Jonathan Creek and I like detective programs and stuff. So I used to read things like Agatha Christie when I was younger as oh, well. Oh, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you like to say to our audience directly? If there's anyone out there who's wondering if they're autistic or who is maybe parenting autistic children, I think my best bit of advice is to find autistic people online or or in real life, we're very easy to find online, and read their blogs, follow them, and learn from autistic people. Because the first thing you do when you learn, when you're trying to learn about autism is Google, and there's just so much bad information out there, stereotypes, myths, and quite scary information, which isn't all correct. So if you want to get to the sort of autism acceptance stage, I think it's good to find other people like you and connect with them and learn from them that's helped me a lot since i got diagnosed all right well that's wonderful thank you so much shauna thank you so much for everything you're doing and taking the time to chat with us today and thank you for being actually autistic (laughs) thank you and thanks for having me it's been good all right we'll talk again sometime Mm